This episode of Sauce Mama is brought to you by Dairy Farmers A2 Goodness Plus Prebiotic Milk. We've heard a lot about the importance of good gut bugs, but what these tiny organisms eat to survive is just as vital. They feed on prebiotics. And a super easy way to get prebiotics into your kid's diet is through the milk they drink. Containing only the A2 protein plus added prebiotics, Dairy Farmers A2 Goodness Plus Prebiotics is goodness from free-roaming, pasture-raised cows. Dairy Farmers, here's to good. We invite you to join the most exclusive, inclusive club for special needs mamas, Source Mama. Unapologetically candid, uncut and heartbreakingly real, whilst uniting, elevating and fiercely empowering. Join the greatest pride of lionesses ever to have walked the earth at saucemama.com.au or Instagram or Facebook, follow at saucemama. I'm Rachel Williams and today I'm joined by Abigail Burton. Abigail is the founder of Caring for Yourself as a Carer, which she actually set up after her five-year-old son, Matthew, passed away from a rare and complex condition. Her role is to empower special needs families to get out of survival mode and to take better care of the things that are stressing you, relationships, finances and health. So a big warm welcome to Abigail. Hello Abigail, lovely to meet you and and welcome to Source Mama. Thank you, it's a pleasure. How are you going? You're you're in lockdown COVID world at the moment. You're surviving with a house full of children. (laughs) Yeah, so it's always the risk of them bursting in here. But um, yeah, it's not been too bad. I find it easier to focus on the things that I actually need to be doing as opposed to all the crazy comings and goings. So I'm doing pretty okay. Um, But um, I think the husband and the kids are a bit more stir crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That's always the way. Look, thank you for joining us and sharing a little bit about your story with us. And I'll ask you to detail that because I know that when Matthew passed away, he was one of, I believe, only two children in the world who had the condition that that he had. Um, So I can imagine that it's challenging to to share your personal experiences. But can you just take us us back, introduce Matthew to us and and tell us about him and and what what he was like in your life? Sure. Um, So like you said, he had a complex medical condition and he was one of three when he died, but only the second person to be diagnosed. And I'm already have company that's all right we love company here at source mama we're used to it (laughs) what do you need bud he's trying to do his schoolwork but all his school supplies are in here oh okay did ask him to get them yes i shouldn't say it's a boy thing it's just a child thing isn't it (laughs) (laughs) yeah so um matthew um we didn't get a diagnosis until he was four and a half And at that point, he was already, he'd been in palliative care since he was 12 months old. And he had um, been declining for around six months at the point that we got his um, diagnosis. And it wasn't overly helpful to have a diagnosis. Um, When you're only one of two at the time in the world, it means this other person child you don't even know has a similar condition um with similar chromosome dna changes but that doesn't mean much because you need at least 400 
people with the condition before they can make kind of a like assessment of what's normal for that condition. So it didn't mean much and it wasn't until we had an MRI which showed changes on his brain um, another three months later that we knew we could draw the connection between what had been going on the last nine months. Um, he had symptoms of gut failure, those kind of things, and the connection between the genetic condition and the actual changes we are seeing in him and it all made sense. It was actually MRI which said his brainstem didn't develop from 22 weeks gestation brainstem is responsible for things like breathing your heart rate and like probably gut related digestive stuff so as soon as and that stuff's supposed to happen regardless of whether you're conscious or not and the trouble is when your brainstem stops working then he was only breathing when he was conscious of it and in his last 14 hours he only breathed four times a a minute for 14 hours before he passed away because he's that was clear at that point that his brainstem had stopped working that must have um, been a really horrible haunting experience to, to live through as a young mum absolutely absolutely he it was um we had got permission from the royal children's hospital in melbourne for my husband to stay that night also um at hospital because we he'd been in hospital at this point probably over a month. He'd had his birthday there, his five-year five birthday. Um, we broke him out of um, hospital. We got a four-hour leave pass and a palliative care nurse and a lot of drugs um, to take him to his birthday party, um, which that week they'd kind of gone, oh, it should be all right. Don't, like, maybe we'll postpone the party and he, when he, he, when he's feeling better, he can do it. And then, I, then they went, actually, no, maybe just do it. Just go do it. And they organised that all. And um, he actually declined at the point we put him in the car to start bringing him home from his birthday party. Just something that you would never, ever wish upon anyone to go through, I'm, I'm assuming. And hello, you've got a, a big brother here as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is Shane. He's um, hello, Shane. eight, two, two and a half years older than Matthew. Um, and um, so he was there for all of it. That must be really um, hard as well to, to, you know, know that you've got an elder child who was healthy to look after at the same time. How did you rationalise that? Well, it was um, really tough in the beginning because though Matthew had some abnormalities on his 20-week scan, which, news to me, that's what it's for. That scan is to look for abnormalities. You don't know that until they find abnormalities. Um, And then we had scans after that every six weeks, but... You know, everything was supposed to be fine. He was supposed to have a little brother to play with. Um, and I think, I don't know if he remembers this, but in the first few months he used to, like, line up his cars, like, around Matthew's head and, um, you know, bring his toys to Matthew because he just, you know, like everybody else's little younger siblings, he wanted someone to play with. And um, unfortunately Matthew was never able to do it um, that way. But, um, you know, over the years... Matthew, though he was non-verbal and unable to sit or crawl or roll over, we did learn to roll over in the last 12 months, um, they developed their own communication and their own play. But, yeah, in the first few months that was very, um, I think, disappointing for him in, you know, whatever sense that he could understand that at two years old. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. 
<laughs> he's uh, trying to make his moment of fame uh, stretch a little bit further there on the TV yes. screen, which is so brilliant. this is um, <laughs> quite typical to some of the behaviour we would see. Um, long admission in hospital, he'd be happily watching screen time and then the doctors would come in to do their rounds and then similar behaviour would ensue. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, a lot of parents that we do talk to through Source Mama and, and Source Kids sort of say it's really hard to get that juggling act of the needs of the other children as well. Please stop doing that. Yeah, it is It is really tricky. And one of the things that I um, tried really hard to do was to get lots of other people to pay him lots of attention because I knew I wasn't giving him that. Um, I really liked it in the last six months when people, family members, you know, cousins, uncles, aunties would come to the hospital. So we didn't have to leave. They didn't. And we had Mackenzie then too. Mackenzie's two years younger than Matthew. Um, if they could take them to go to the playground, to go to the starlight room, you know, to go get food or whatever and have like... Or to go to the zoo. Or to the zoo because <laughs> we had a zoo membership, yeah, um, and because that's just around the corner from the hospital. Um, yeah, where there's a tram that goes straight there. And a tram that goes straight there. <laughs> He's got um, it totally covered. <laughs> oh, he had it totally covered. And if he goes into hospital, we like we would get to the point where we'd probably let him just go where he needed to go because he knew exactly what was going on but it wasn't quite old enough for other people to be okay with that. No, fair enough. So that was um, a big decision for you knowing what you were going through with Matthew to have another baby. It was a tough call um, because we didn't have a diagnosis then and um, we called, we had regular meetings with our geneticist and that was obviously one of the conversations we had quite early on. And they told us that there was a 25% chance that any further children that we had would have the condition. Um, and um, there was no testing we could do because without a diagnosis, you don't know what you're testing for. So you can't check. Um, we did, when we got pregnant with her, I went with the you know, the women's hospital just up the road from the children's hospital and actually some of the same geneticists work at both hospitals. So when my name came across their desk, they recognised Matthew's case immediately and they called me. They're like, hey, Abby, your name just came across my desk. There are lots of benefits to being a regular at hospital. Yes. Um, and they said, look, you can, um, you can get testing and you can go have, you know, like the Down syndrome type test run, but none of that's going to pick up what was wrong with Matthew. No. Because one, we don't know what's wrong with Matthew, and two, it's a really specialised test, so none of that's going to, like, help. Yeah. And I remember my mother-in-law's initial response to us telling her she was we were pregnant. We waited a long time before we told people because <laughs> we were expecting that response of, oh, how can you be thinking of having another child? And her, she was like really excited. And then the first words out of her mouth were, you can test for that. Yeah. And we were like, test for what? Exactly. <laughs> like, no, it's not a thing. So yeah, 25% chance, but all of his, her scans went really well. All of those things went really well. So we just had to hope and pray. Her labor went really well. Matthew's labor didn't go well. He had to be resuscitated. Um, and then he went into special care for five days. So when labour went okay and all the scans had been okay, like you kind of get a little bit more reassured as the process went on. Um, and so that was 
a little bit reassuring, but the midwife knew the story, knew everything that was going on, and she checked him over and double-checked him and then went to the paediatrician and said, look, this is everything. And he's like, I can come look at him, but it sounds like you've, or her, sounds like you've covered everything. There's nothing to see. And we didn't know Matthew was very sick until um, he first got admitted to to Children's Hospital at nine weeks old. So he was resuscitated and went to special care and they did order that his first lot of genetic tests but they didn't actually know or think for sure that something was wrong because some of those things I'm sure we all know people whose kids have been to special care like and and even been resuscitated at birth but that means not like it happens sometimes yeah it doesn't mean there's something wrong so how has his loss changed you as a person and as a mother and as a family unit? Um, it's a great question. I think I've learned to be a lot more gentle with myself. Um, and I probably could have done with that lesson years ago. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're just not up for things, you're just not up for it. And I think, having lost Matthew gave me permission to give myself that space and um, and learning that emotions take a toll on your energy, you know. And I think we feel like, oh, I've had a bad day, whatever, we don't think much of it. But when you have such a big thing happen, you can see proportionately how much it physically affects you. Like you know, all physiology stuff gets affected and that's when you start like really tying the two between your energy, how your body's feeling and what you're actually going through is massive. So when you go, when I've been going through things since then, it's been about, okay, how much is this actually affecting me? How much space do I actually need to give myself to, um, you know, go through this well in a healthy way? Um, we've continued to stay connected with very special kids, um, which we really appreciate the associations that don't end with the death of the child is really, really important because otherwise your whole world would just disappear. Like we don't go to the hospital, we don't see all those therapists, we don't see all those nurses who are like Matthew's, you know, second family. Um, And before he passed away, I was really concerned about that because I spent so much time with those people. I was like, what's going to happen to my life afterwards? My husband was very like, oh, now you can help out in class at school and get to know the school mums. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> no, if I've got time, if I've got free time now that I didn't have before, I want to choose to use it for something that I want as opposed to like being told by everything around me. What should do, yeah. What I, I think we, we should we... do now. We spoke at the start and I, I asked you the question, is is there anything off the table uh, for this interview? Mm-hmm. But I think, and you said no, but what I want to know is do you ever wish people didn't ask a particular question or conversely, do you wish people did ask you a certain question so that you could say what you're feeling and, and explain how you felt and what you went through? Mm. I think people depends on the environment some people just avoid talking about him altogether and sometimes that's makes it really hard for me to be open about it because I know that they're not you know they've obviously already taken that step to protect themselves and I'm like well what about me you know I'm the one who actually like lost 
Matthew. Um, and other times people, I remember the first few months, especially like maybe the first six months, people would go ask me how I was. They'd come up and, you know, do sad face and be like, how are you? And then they would do this thing where they kind of stood back, like almost holding out their hands to like catch me in case the question made me, you know, fall apart kind of thing. And I'd be like, look at me. Do I look like I'm going to like fall apart just because you asked me how I was? And I, I wrote an article about it. I said, if I lie, which I might, and say, oh, yeah, I'm fine, that's because I don't feel safe or that this is the place to do it. Like, don't ask me at work in the middle of a deadline or whatever, you know, how's it been? How's it going? How's the family? And expect me to, like, give you the full detailed account when, like, I just can't go there right now. So I might just, you know, everyone says, oh, yeah, it's good, you know. Um, I might do that. But, um, yeah, and it's my relationship with you, like, you're some like random acquaintance. I'm not going to give you the full detailed description of what's going down in my family and how we're handling it. Um, I need to feel safe. Um, one thing that people said, especially people from very special kids, and a lot of the volunteers there have grief counselling training and all kinds of things, and one of the things that they always said, which really um, touched me, was when I saw them for the first time, they would say, I was really sad to hear about Matthew. And I really appreciated that because they were owning their feelings and how it affected them. And they weren't projecting anything on me. Mm-hmm. They didn't say, oh, I'm really sorry, that's really sad. Or they didn't conversely say, um, you know, he's better off or any of those things. They just owned how they felt about it. And it was really touching because I then knew how it affected them and how important he was to them, which even now when people message me or like a cousin talks, says, um, you know, my sister-in-law will message me and be like, Maddie, who's about Mackenzie's age, um, Madeline, was talking about Matthew today and said she missed him, you know, tell me that you miss him tell me that you how he's affecting your life and how you're missing him but don't project any of what you think or feel on me like that's my like I can do that for myself that's yeah you mentioned that you'd written an article writing's become quite a cathartic thing for you in on this journey hasn't it yeah so I started writing gosh maybe eight weeks after Matthew passed away I started the um, Caring for Yourself as a Carer blog um, because, yes, that's definitely part of how I process, especially at night time. I like, I know lots of mums do it, but, you know, you like the quiet when no one else is, everyone's in bed and you just get some time to yourself. But I've always been a bit like that anyway. And journaling, writing everything down, just like processing that way, is something I did while Matthew was alive and on and off before that as well. Um so I started doing that, but then I started t- t- turning those into articles on the website because I knew that the journey is all like, I don't know, it's like the blind leading the blind in the dark, like, you know, like, yep. so anything that anyone who's been there or um, has experienced it is helpful. 
but also um, I found um, there were a few mums and I'm sure they're like Emma Price and some of the other people on the team or whatever who actually go, there's good we can get out of this. This is good we can offer others. You know, there's positive to this and, you know, I can be better and um, grow and all of those things through this journey and I don't have to just stay stuck and miserable and depressed. I can actually figure out how to do this. Um, and there are a few people like that, but what I noticed is that's not the majority and it probably never will be the majority, but some of the other people, which of course, at some point I was one of those people who was stuck completely in my own problems, isolated myself, um, all of those things. They don't know that there's another way that they don't have to stay that way. And that's where I was like, somebody's got to tell them where in the process does someone say you don't actually have to be miserable for this entire journey yeah like so caring for yourself as a care of the website that's obviously enabling people to learn how to to care for themselves and, and to get that new state of mind and quality of life yeah yeah and even just to introduce the idea because you can't make someone do that and you can't tell somebody that they should but if they've never even heard of the concept of um, post-traumatic growth as opposed to post-traumatic or continuing post-traumatic stress, you know, there's no, they don't even know there's a way out. There's another way. And that's, yeah. So what do you find that they need when they reach out to you through the website? Um, isolation is a big thing. Um, so that's, something I really focus on um, and it's something that is easily identified to them I feel really alone I talk to my you know my mother-in-law my mum my sisters you know whoever and they're all like oh you know it'll be right and I'm going no no yeah, that's especially not, not <laughs> yeah right so that stuff comes up every day so that's a really common thing um, so having just having a story to say yeah that's what my life is like is really really good um and then i think for me it's a bit of a healthy living journey too so it's about putting good things in your body trying to get some exercise and people you know automatically respond to this oh i can't do that i can't control my life but i did it with a child with a medically complex condition and which means that i did it in like you know five minute increments and i did things that took one minute to add to my life so you know, I've been there and I know that that's your initial response, but it can be done. And I'm not the only one. I'm not a unicorn. <laughs> so that's what I try to kind of raise awareness about and support people in. And the importance of getting out of that survival mode of just, just getting through the day to actually being able to live. How hard is that decision to make? And then once it clicks, is it, is it easy to actually navigate and, and make those changes? I think the decision is the hard part. Like coming to the point where you make that decision for yourself is the hard part for sure. And um, that's something I'm working through regularly is like, because everybody has different personalities, you know, takes things differently, those kind of things. So that's something I'm working through. I don't think there's a universal answer to how you get to that point that you make that decision. Um, but I think once you make that decision, 
it's a bit like your eyes are suddenly opened to the opportunities because when you make a decision, you've opened up all those pathways and suddenly you'll see a whole bunch of options in front of you that you just couldn't see before you made the decision. Um, some people say, you know, people like to have everything figured out before they make a choice about something. And sometimes that's not possible because you can't see the opportunities until you've made that decision. Um, so that's where I like to support people. Um, just to kind of see that somebody's doing it and um, ask them, you know, when I'm regularly checking with people, because I visit when it's not Corona, I visit the hospital once a week. And I also help host the very special kids um, coffee morning at the hospital once a month, those kind of things. And I ask things like, and other people ask it, other professionals ask it, and they always get the, oh, no, it's fine answer. But if I can, you know, on a peer level ask, what have you eaten today? <laughs> you know, like, oh, I had an apple super healthy is that the only thing you ate today you know like just to kind of jog the is there something else you can do because it doesn't have to be a hard thing you know that you a hard choice you make and an apple is better than a packet of chips but it's not enough for a whole day's food no i'm just amazed like you would be forgiven for you know i know that you said about um those contacts and connections you had but to still be maintaining a presence in in this world despite his passing is just phenomenal you must get just as much out of it as the, what you give definitely definitely i enjoy being part of a community that understood understands what i go through especially the very special kids families and the, and the families that are in hospital all the time i enjoy um i don't know if i go hang out with the school mums they're not gonna ever bring up a scenario where I can go, oh yeah, I'd live that. Like, like not in my recent memory, not in like the last six years have, you know, nor like I've got other two other kids, so I'm not completely out of the loop, but it's not what immediately comes to mind. I remember going out with my mother's group one night. Um, some of the girls booked into a hotel. We went to uh, witches and britches or something, you know, like, <laughs> and we were sitting at the, um, you know, having cheese and crackers and whatever beforehand. And one of the girls like, oh, yeah, my daughter, she's got um, uh, cellulitis. And I went, oh, yeah, that's awful. And she goes, oh, yeah, we have to do antibiotics and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, yeah, and we have to do the bleach baths where you, warning, scrub off the skin to, like, yeah. the infected skin. And they're all just like, and the, and the mum was telling the story. She goes, you must have, like, a story for, a story, like a one-up story for every story. And I was like, Sorry. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I don't. Like, I thought we were talking about the same thing. Yes. We weren't talking about the same oh, thing. Okay. It wasn't the same. Like, it's cellulitis, but in a healthy child, it looks a bit different from in a child with, you know, who's immune compromised or, you know, sensitive. So, like, I was like, I thought we were on the same level. I thought this was finally something that I could like. And then they're like, Oh my God, what are you saying? And no one <laughs> ate the cheese and crackers after that, did they? <laughs> I know. Luckily there was wine involved, so I think it was, uh, it was the moment was over quickly. <laughs> yes, I think uh, for the sauce, Mum, and we do drink responsibly, but I think wine often uh, helps, doesn't it? So I'm Tom... actually not a drinker myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have one for you then. Um, so just, I suppose, just in wrapping up, what would you tell someone who, 
obviously with Matthew's condition, it was so rare, but there are so many other families facing rare diseases um, on the journey and not having a diagnosis. What do you tell people um, to, you know, help them go about their journey? If your child has a rare condition and the doctor says when you get into ED, what is it? I'll Google it. (laughs) You are probably the world's foremost expert in that condition. (laughs) Own it. Like, um, you know your child, you know, like the day to day. And if you're, if their condition is rare, you're a wealth of information that can be used. So own that as a, as a parent of a child with a rare condition. Absolutely. Aren't we going to have an interaction? Well, we, we appreciate your time yeah. and I know that you've got kids homeschooling and uh, we can hear them in the background but thank you you've, you've been remarkable and um it's, it's been really lovely to, hello uh, shane wasn't it shane's yeah. age mackenzie um yeah. nearly five she said didn't she yes <laughs> so you've got your hands yeah. full but thank you very much for your thank time we appreciate it of course people can um follow your blog and, and all the details on the website oh thank you very much yeah absolutely Wonderful. Well, look, thank you so much for that, Abigail. And as I said earlier, I'm Rachel Williams, and it is my pleasure to bring you these Source Mama podcasts. You never know what interruptions we're going to get or, or what sort of information we're going to gleam. So if you have enjoyed this episode, please uh, check out our other episodes, and we will have some more coming for you soon. There is also plenty more inspiration over on the sourcemama.com.au website. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and there is even a private Facebook group group that uh, you can become a member of and feel very exclusively inclusive in that as well. So thank you to all the special needs mamas out there. I hope you have enjoyed today's podcast and we'll see you again soon. This episode of Source Mama is brought to you by Dairy Farmers A2 Goodness plus prebiotic milk. We've heard a lot about the importance of good gut bugs, but what these tiny organisms eat to survive is just as vital. They feed on prebiotics. And a super easy way to get prebiotics into your kids' diet is through the milk they drink. Containing only the A2 protein plus added prebiotics, Dairy Farmers A2 Goodness Plus Prebiotics is goodness from free-roaming, pasture-raised cows. Dairy Farmers, here's to good.